What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is approved. What kind of proof? It's approved. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy, you know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. Today on the podcast, we have Takara Small. She covers technology, internet culture, social media, and business for numerous publications, including eTalk and Canadian Business. She recently was the host of the technology podcast series, A Death in Cryptoland, which investigated the rise and fall of the cryptocurrency exchange founder, Gerald Cotton, which is what we are excited to talk more about today. Takara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Takara, can you start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself and who you are? Yes. Uh, so I cover technology. Uh, you did like such a great summary earlier. I cover technology, social media, internet culture um, for a, a couple of publications. So BBC obviously is one of them. Um, I've written for the Gold Mail, Canadian Business, uh, and BBC Radio. So, you know, tech is what I've always loved talking about, writing about. And I'm so, so lucky that I get to do that for so how exactly did you find this expertise in tech? Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about your career, I guess, in, in, with technology reporting? I really fell in love with tech when um, I was at university. So I am going to avoid very like specifics because I'll age myself. Um, <laughs> but, um, when I was in my last year of university, a lot of students had to um, pick like a specialty, quote unquote, and I chose online journalism. And that was, the reason I chose that is because I always felt like technology really was a game changer. It really defined um, who really had the opportunity to grow and learn and who had access really determined um, in some ways your future you know, work and um, any progress you can make. I grew up in a small town where we had dial up and you know wi-fi was kind of a dream in itself and so i was very aware at a young age at how you know important the internet was and and when i moved to toronto for university i just fell in love with the ability to you know search for whatever i wanted at any time and in university i, I realized that's what i wanted to study and this is before technology you know was its own vertical verticals kind of language for columns you, you see on many news sites it was before you know, technology was on the front page of newspapers every day. Yes, we've always had BlackBerry. Um, yes, you know, Yahoo, Google have always uh, been huge. But for a long time, technology really focused on device reviews. And I still love reading those and, and doing them. But um, it didn't really look at the bigger picture. And I knew that's where I wanted to be. And I, you know, worked at CBC doing the night shift for a little bit. And I was on the science and tech desk when it was, it was at one point together. And it's it's where I realized like this is what I want to do. This is where I want to shine. This is this is my future. And you know I'm so fortunate that like now there seems to be 
a hunger for people who have expertise in this area. And also want to talk about things uh, that are how society and technology interact. So I've written stories about how smart devices can be used against abused women and how it can be used to curtail the freedoms of minorities and other people and underserved areas. And I really think technology is more than just the glitz and glam that we see every year when a new device is released. It, it really has the power to change lives for good or for bad, depending on its use. And I, I went, I, I realized that's, you know, what I wanted to cover. And but, um, I, after I left CBC, I managed to work with some really, really great publications that taught me how to think critically about tech and how to write about it. Um, for Fortune magazine in the States and here, Metro Newspaper, which is unfortunately no longer here, but was a, a daily across Canada and the Golden Mail, where I got to talk to entrepreneurs about, you know, how they, how they're trying to build their business, what needs to change in Canada. And it's just been, you know, strength to strength since then. Wow. Well, it's certainly a really fruitful area. Um, Maybe let's kind of veer the conversation towards crypto specifically, if we could. And just to start on a really level playing field, can you explain, um, I I feel bad asking like someone with your expertise to go this basic, but can you explain to the listeners what cryptocurrency is and what a cryptocurrency exchange is? Yes. Uh, For many people, they've heard the word cryptocurrency. Um, it probably sounds familiar, but they may not know exactly what it is. So I think the easiest way to think about cryptocurrency is just thinking about it as like digital money. Um, and the value assigned to that is determined by what other people, um, not just in your country, not just in your continent, but other people are willing um, to pay for it. And you have to mine mine cryptocurrency. So it's not like something anyone can just pull out of the air. Um, It takes a lot of computer work, um, computational algorithms to um, mine and create um, this type of currency. And I think probably most people are familiar with Bitcoin, maybe Dogecoin, because, you know, so so that's essentially what it is. Um, And that's why you see a lot of these, these, you know, huge just recently anyone who's invested in you know any type of crypto has seen like a lot of turbulation in the last couple of months and and that's one reason why is because unlike canadian dollar for instance there is an institution um that can step in that can regulate how much money how much is trading it's it's kind of in a way kind of amazing in that sense um it really is determined by wholly completely 100 percent determined by others and and not just one institution in general so that's kind of um i hope i explained that well yes you did (laughs) thank you so uh, you know as you said crypto because of its decentralized nature has the potential to be a really incredible tool um, for good but has also unfortunately on the flip side been caught up in a lot of in scams um, and so can you talk a little bit about why cryptocurrency is at the center of so many controversies it's at the center of a lot of online discussions and that's simply because it is a form of digital currency which means that um, you know, it, it is, it's not immune to outside sources. There can be highs and lows. It, there's no way to tell what the future looks like, but also because uh, it is decentralized, it makes it an attractive currency um, for obviously trafficking illegal means. 
um, ransomware, um, et cetera. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's it's at the the center of a lot of um, I want to say controversy because cryptocurrency in itself can be used for any type of um, any means, but it's definitely a focal point, a focal point, and one that we've seen, you know, ransomware gangs use in order to facilitate um, illegal operations. I will say that, you know, another reason is the fact that there's a lot of people who see value and opportunity in the crypto scene, and because you hear like on the front page of newspapers, you usually hear about people who have either made a ton of money or lost a ton of money. And I feel like because of where a lot of people are right now, especially post pandemic financially, it creates a lot of people who are eager to try and make as much money as they possibly can. And there are individuals who will abuse that trust for their own means. Um, and you know, with the Rodriguez story, we, we talked to so many people um, who were just looking to invest their money for retirement. Um, they were looking to increase their down payment and ended up losing everything at the end of the day. Um, and so that's why, um, you know, it's a space that I suggest people stay away from unless they've done their research and uh, avoid at all costs if they don't have... Um, the means to lose any money. It's a lotto at best. Let's shift to talk about the podcast um, specifically. Can you tell us about what drew you into this story? Yes. Uh, so I actually started, you know, covering this story before the podcast be, you know, was a reality. A was I was covering it and talking about it um, with CBC Radio Metro Morning. So, and this story really fascinated me because there weren't really many exchanges uh, in Canada who were doing the the volume that Rodrigo was. And, you know, when, <laughs> I'm not spoiling anything, um, when Jerry, you know, passed away in India and we, you know, like the rest of the world discovered that uh, the funds he had were inaccessible and no one knew where they were or were unsure of how to access them. It really... Um, I think it really ignited something inside myself. And I thought, okay, this is so unusual. This is not how an exchange operates. This is not how a, um, a founder operates. There's way more to this than, you know, perhaps misplaced keys or, you know, a potential, you know, lost drive of some sort. And And that really kind of brought me into the story. And I think, you know, no one could have anticipated what was to come afterwards, the um, conspiracy theories, the fact that a lot of his personal money and the company money was merged, a lot about his history. Um, but that was really what kind of drew me in. And these are the type of stories I think any technology journalist lives for. Oh, completely. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the, the falling out um, from his death, can you tell us a little bit more about who Gerald Cotton was? By all accounts, very bright, very smart young man who grew up in Belleville, Ontario, um, was always interested, at, you know, in technology um, and was, you know, on a lot of forums as a young kid trying to make money. He was incredibly smart. He ended up 
moving to Toronto, attending university, and you know, someone in their 20s creating a company like this that sees millions of dollars going through at a regular rate and has customers all over the world, that's quite impressive. I don't think you can pull something off like that if you're not uh, intelligent and forward thinking to an extent, I guess. So that's who, that's who Jerry Cotton is, a very young, intelligent, forward thinker in some ways. Can you talk about the rise and maybe walk us through the, the rise of Quadriga CX, which of course is the company that uh, Jerry founded? Quadriga was launched in 2013. And so Quadriga was an online exchange. Also, I say Quadriga, Quadriga CX. Um, I think, you know, in the press, online, they've been used interchangeably. The official name is Quadriga CX, but I tend to refer to Quadriga. Um, so, you know, the company was an online exchange. It launched in 2013. And um, pretty much what it is, is it allows individuals to, you know, if you think about like park cash and crypto online, so they can, you know, you know, use cash to exchange change into any number of cryptocurrencies. And in Canada, it was quite challenging to find one that could do that. There weren't many at the time. I think Quadriga was one of three. Most of them were in the US. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of legal financial applications with doing that. So it allowed you, if you were in Canada and you said, hey, I wanted to purchase some Bitcoin. I don't know where to do that or how to do that. Uh, Quadriga was the place you could do that. It's based in Vancouver, um, even though Cotton was from Ontario, um, lived in Toronto when he attended York. but it allowed a lot of people, it gave a lot of people greater access to it. And because they partnered with a Canadian bank as well, it gave the impression that your money was safe, um, that it was, um, you would be able to access it. Uh, they were following certain financial and legal rules as well that would avoid the you know, craziness that we saw happen later um, in the, the company's you know, journey. But as we were, you know, as I was saying, it, it started in 2013. Um, Jerry is actually the co-founder. A lot of people like to reference him as like the sole founder of the company, but he had a partner named um, Michael Patron, aka Omar Danani, who we later found um, had quite uh, a sizable rap sheet from his time in the U.S. and was deported from America back to Canada um, for um, financial crime. So the the I always say that this is like a Hollywood movie um, come to life. Like you couldn't write a stranger, truer story uh, than this. And, and that's why I'm always just like, you know, it's only a matter of time before you have like, I don't know, Leonardo DiCaprio playing Jerry <laughs> on the, the small screen. But, <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> I can't wait to see the miniseries. Exactly right. Um, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was just like a regular company. He, he launched it. Um, and because there weren't many competitors at the time, they grew quite rapidly. They were definitely networking, working with other individuals um, who were in the same space. And I think the fact that it gave this air of professionalism, they had a great website. They requested a lot of financial information for, from you before you could sign up throughout my journey covering the story, one of the things I've heard the most from people across North America, um, across Europe, was that because it was based in Canada, there was a lot of trust in the system. 
meaning there was a lot of trust that the government was overseeing this new space and Canada has a great reputation on the international stage. So there was a belief that there wasn't, it wasn't possible for someone to lose millions of dollars uh, like what we saw. Um, there was the idea that this was being monitored, that there was safeguards in place. And when things started to crumble after, I'd say it actually started to crumble shortly before Jerry died in India because there were fewer people dumping money, dumping crypto onto the exchange. So he was running out of cash very quickly. And, and when he died and it all started to fall apart, it really opened a lot of people's eyes to how unstable the space is. And I, and I don't think it's fair to um, assume that this can't happen anywhere else. I mean, there was just a huge, uh, I mean, everyone knows about Mt. Gox, but there's just, you know, a huge exchange last week that lost millions of dollars. And as you alluded to, this company was not, you know, to be as successful ultimately as, uh, as originally, I think everyone thought it was going to be. And of course, those safeguards that you talked about that everyone thought were in place in fact, weren't. So um, can you talk us about kind of the unraveling that happened after Jerry's death and and why, why he didn't have a dead man switch? And can you explain kind of what that is? Yes. So a dead man switch, that's just, you know, in any <laughs> well-running company, any, um, you know, startup or firm that deals in crypto, a dead man switch is essentially... Um, what you can use if you've lost the keys, AKA the passwords for where your crypto is stored. Um, and a lot of people store this information in cold wallets, which cold wallets, for those who don't know, it's just, um, you know, it's just a space where you can store um, all of that information offline. And if it's offline so that, you know, hackers or people with nefarious uh, motives can't pretty much clean out your company. And so he did not have this, dead man switch, which is very unusual, um, very odd, and is one of the reasons why people assume that this was a scam from the very beginning, um, that one would not have that. And things really started to unravel. Okay, I would say things started to unravel before his death in India. And you can't see me, but I'm doing like air quotes because so many people believe he's still alive. I personally do not think he's still alive. I think in this day and age, it's very challenging for someone um, to fake their own death and get away with it, especially someone like himself, who's is very high profile, his face, his image, his story, his is all has you know been on every major newspaper nighttime tv show that you can think of since the collapse but again i would say things started to fall apart shortly before india because he was running out of money um and when he passed away in india with his his wife um and again for those people who don't know he was in india because his wife and uh and Jerry, you know, he was on his honeymoon in India and they were really eager to support an orphanage and he had intestinal issues and then shortly passed away um, very quickly. 
and after he died and you know not only were customers you know left in the lurch because they had no idea what was going to happen to their money um but so were you know his employees some of his employees um some of the company's supporters and advocates um who had deposited huge sums of money and if you listen to the podcast it will it will break your heart there were people who you know told us they were friends with Jerry they believed in Jerry and not only did they um you know dump their assets into Kudriga they also had their friends and family do the same and that's a lot of guilt to shoulder um that's a that's a lot uh for anyone to have to deal with but I have to add that the stories that came out afterwards about how he had you know all of these homes he had a private jet um he married in some lavish castle that all added to the mystery and mystique behind you know the company's story and history and that's really you know those details coming out really added um added to the international appeal to this Canadian story. You've so you've alluded to a few of them, the fact that, um, you know, Jerry was seems to clearly have been mixing Quadriga's assets with his own. Um, you discovered that Michael Patron, uh, AKA Omar Danani, uh, had quite a rap sheet, which included financial crime in his past. Um, can you drill down a few more of the signs that people point to, um, certainly the people who believed that this was kind of a scam from the beginning. I'm thinking maybe specifically of some of Jerry's prior um, alleged scams, we'll say. Can you drill down some of the, the other, you know, cracks in the empire that were revealed after Jerry died suddenly at 30 years old? Yes. So when Jerry was younger, he was involved in several scams. We were able to determine, you know, exactly the extent i mean it could have been that he was a young kid who ended up you know underwater and did some you know dodgy things but when he was when he was younger he would go online and he would you know it was similar in the sense that he would offer these ridiculous rates of return for people who would you know invest assets or money um with jerry and he was such a young kid and masquerading as an adult with financial experience and um, quite affluent. And I think if you look back, the fact that he participated in these online endeavors and a lot of people lost their money and assets, but that he didn't really have to suffer any real consequences. And by consequences, I mean, he didn't end up having, um, you know, he didn't end up in court. He didn't um, end up in jail. And that some people, you know, say like that's a sign that from an earlier age, not only was he comfortable with um, using duplicity to get his way, but also the fact that he saw there weren't really any consequences to his actions when he lied or um, he, you know, did whatever he possibly could to find, you know, individuals. So that's, you could say that's a crack, you know, one of the early cracks, but many people didn't know about his previous history. I'd say in the early days, one of the, you know, after talking to some victims and, you know, individuals who knew him, some of the cracks just seemed to be that he was very closed off. 
and he never really was quite open with how Quadriga was being run. So it was very much kind of like a black box. A lot of people just assumed that, yes, you know, the money would, or the assets would be kept separate from his, that he had a team that supported him and a board um, that was, you know, overseeing everything, but it really wasn't the case in reality. And additionally, um, you know, Quadriga used, um, I told you actually had um, a bank, CIBC at the time, where they deposited all of their money. And that was the go-between um, for Canadians who, you know, obviously there aren't many banks who um, will partner with a crypto exchange. And this was kind of to many people a sign like, oh, okay, they're on the up and up. They have a major Canadian bank who's working with them. There's no way that there's anything nefarious going on. And when the bank decided to pretty much pause any transactions going in or out of the account because they saw these huge sums of money being deposited and removed and they flagged it. It actually ended up in the Globe and Mail, this, um, this, huge, this huge event. But I think that was maybe the first sign that something wasn't right. And at the time, Jerry blamed it on the fact that, oh, like, you know, this is, you know, by, this is bias. We're being um, treated unfairly because we're in crypto and a lot of financial institutions don't understand how crypto works. It looks like perhaps there's trafficking or some type of illegal um, financial doing going on. And, but I think that was like the first sign that something maybe wasn't right. He used, he used the fact that this story ended up on, you know, in a really great reputable newspaper as a, to say like, oh, this is why maybe you're not getting your money back um, at a regular time. Or, um, you know, individuals would say like they would want to, you know, either they would deposit money, which would be fine, but either they wanted to, you know, you know, take out assets or they wanted to remove some of the cash that was on the exchange and it could take a really long time. And Jerry used this incident as a way to say like, well, it's not us, it's the banks or it's this institution or it's this agency. But there were a lot of people we talked to who would say like, you know, for some reason it would take a week to, to get my money or sometimes it would take 24 hours. And that was the discrepancy without any real explanation was concerning. Can you explain why some people believe that Jerry may not actually be dead? If I were to show you my inbox, I would never do that. But if I were to show you the messages I have, my Insta and my Twitter, even on my um, TikTok, it is full of people who have gone in, you know, to great lengths to explain how Jerry is still alive they reach out to me under the guise of it being a conversation, but it's really not. It's just them being like, so this is where he is. He's in Bermuda and he's in this city. And I know it because X, Y, Z. And I'll be like, Oh, okay. I'll be like, well, that's interesting. How did you get there? And they'll be like, so when are you going to go to the RCMP? And I'm like, um, so I don't, I don't know if this is, I don't know if your gut feeling is enough for the police to issue an international warrant, but yeah, thanks for sharing with me your thoughts and, you know, concerns about this case. And it's just, it's, it's just amazing how many people have reached out to me with like their own idea of where he is. Like, it's not just that they think he's alive, but like where in the world is it's like a weird version of Carmen San Diego. But the reason people still believe he's alive 
is because he died under such unusual circumstances in India. And if for you know those who haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast, I really suggest you tune in because it really goes you know into some detail about how it's possible in India to purchase a fake death certificate. So it's you know it shows how like you can actually pay brokers who will issue a certificate that details in specificity like how you died, where you died. Um, on the black market. And so because of the fact that this is, is this is a well-known fact that you can do this in India and the fact that he passed away so suddenly, you know, it's very rare for someone to pass away, like, you know, within 48 hours of having stomach issues. And the fact that his body um, was, you know, the body was delivered by the hotel to you know, being, you know, to be reviewed and investigated, it was, there's just so many weird circumstances that have led people to believe this, this can't be real, this can't be true. And even to this day, you know, his body is, he's been buried in Halifax, but it's never been exhumed. And many people view the fact that the police have not exhumed the body as somewhat odd and an easy way to put to bed this entire conspiracy theory. But that's that's one of the reasons why people think he's still alive. You know, the game was up. He was running out of cash near the end. He decided to honeymoon in an area that is notorious for fake brokers who sell death certificates to your liking. And he happened to, you know, have partnered with, you know, a co-founder who had a, a lengthy rap sheet. So all of those things combined have convinced people regardless of what I think or say, that he's still alive. And also, I think, too, along with everything that you said, that there's so many people who just want him to be alive because of the devastating losses that they've suffered. Um, and so I, I you know, wonder if you can take us through you know, some of the, the more kind of the darker side of the story, if I can call it that, where people really have suffered personal financial losses that have been so devastating and I think are kind of under discussed in this whole story. They are. It's, I found that a lot of reporters, there are several documentaries that exist now about this case. Um, they focused on Jerry, a lot of, you know, documentaries, TV specials, have focused on Jerry and his co-founder. And I understand why, because the story is so ridiculous and so confusing, but the victims have largely been left out of the narrative. And I'm really happy that we were, we focused and we gave those people a chance to talk to us, those who wanted to, not everyone wants to tell their story, obviously around something like this. Um, but a lot of the victims, you know, were just, you know, regular everyday people who perhaps were close to retirement, who were saving for, you know, a wedding, um, for a baby, for a home, and they don't have millions of dollars at their disposal. They can just eat that cost at the end of the day. And, you know, there's one in particular, one person in particular throughout the, the podcast named Cusent and he was very open about how this devastated him, the impact it had on his mental health, his emotional health. And on Reddit, we discovered there are just, you know, thread upon thread of people who were 
you know, saying like, I don't have a lot of money. I, it was really challenging for me to save because the interest rates are so low. And I thought this would be an opportunity to help my child go to university, to help purchase my first home in Toronto. And those people will never see their money back. And one of the, the most devastating things is they don't even have closure right now. So again, one of the reasons why people are pushing to have the body exhumed to, you know, finally say one way or another, he is dead or he is alive. But a lot of people have been suffering throughout the last few years, um, trying to deal with lawyers to see how much money can be, you know, gleaned from whatever assets he had left over, you know, what can be shared with, you know, some of his victims to recoup anything at all, which is very little at this point. So the victims, you know, have largely been left out of the story in, you know, by some individuals, by some reporters and journalists. And, or they've been, I think, unfairly portrayed as naive, which again, I think is an unfair characterization. There are so many people that um, are investing money in unusual ways because they're financially hurting and they have nowhere to turn. I don't, it, you would never blame the victim of, you know, a crime, but yet people feel comfortable doing that when it comes to cryptocurrency because either they know very little about the space or uh, they feel some, some, there's like a sadistic kind of glee to what I found online in some ways. People are, are happy that, you know, this strange space they know nothing about has inflicted pain on others. It's really disturbing and, and disgusting in a lot of ways. Um, I wonder if we can kind of talk about cryptocurrency a little bit more broadly. Um, mm-hmm. At the beginning of the podcast, you talked to Andrew Wagner, who you describe mm-hmm. as the ideologue. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the vision that people like Andrew once had for cryptocurrency and what you know the ideological belief in cryptocurrency is or, or maybe once was? Yeah, um, Andrew was such a, a really amazing person to talk to. Um, very had very grand aspirational ideas about cryptocurrency, how it could be used to change the world. Um, And, you know, I think there are some, there are many types of people who invest in crypto. And one of those people are are like Andrew, where they believe that it has um, the power to make a positive difference in the world. And for people like him, I would say, you know, they believe the and this is this isn't you know untrue they believe that there are a lot of people who have been left out or left behind um from our current financial system which is true and that they believe that cryptocurrency enables people enables you know financial freedom for many people who perhaps are unable to open a bank account or unable to access um regular banking services people who are in other parts of the world where perhaps being an activist impacts their ability to just go to an ATM Um, for women in certain areas where it's impossible to own a bank account. This gives them the ability to do that and so much more. And so there is this fantastical belief that, you know, crypto in itself has the power to remake the world. I would say, um, you know, 
there is, you know, cryptocurrency in itself because it is decentralized. It does have the opportunity um, to give people who maybe don't have access to traditional services, um, who can't pay banking, the regular banking fees, um, that for some people, you know, $5 a month isn't that much. For others, that's the difference between eating and not eating. Um, it gives those people uh, a few, some, some more options. But I would say, that you know, crypto is is like a tool in the sense that it depends at the end of the day how that tool is being used or in some cases abused. So, you know, that's one of the great things that we kind of delved into with this podcast is that this is a little bit about this digital money and how it's changed um, these the lives of people who you know, invested, dumped their assets in, in Quadriga, but also a look at how the people who support it the most um, are still advocating for it. I think it's interesting um, that this idea that it can be freer because I think in the, in the public consciousness, let's say, it seems to be such a male dominated space. And so there are a, a certain number of restrictions to to getting involved in, just in even in the conversation, let alone um, actually in cryptocurrency. So, you know, I, I wonder if you agree with that characterization. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a heavily male dominated space, but I would say, you know, for a very long time, the technology industry has been so as well. So it, it makes sense that there would be a convergence. It's in a it's a really interesting question you ask. I would say that, you know, being a woman, being a black woman, I definitely stand out. You know, that can be, you know, a good thing or a bad thing. Online it tends to be a bad thing. People really hate that I'm black woman in tech sometimes. Um, but I would I would argue that we're seeing real a really huge swing when it comes to crypto in the sense that you know, and there was a study that came out um, a couple of months ago that found that Hispanic and African Americans were some of the individuals who were most invested in crypto. And I think that's really interesting. And it does make sense at the end of the day when you think about it, because again, crypto is an option for people when traditional spaces have excluded them or have made them impossible to navigate. So I think we're seeing a shift with many people of color, um, you know, stepping into the space and trying to um, carve out their own. And it's really interesting. I don't know if you guys have seen the Spike Lee commercial for his own crypto. Have you seen it? No, but I've heard about it. Should we pause so you can see it so I can get your reaction? Okay, I want, okay, after you finish watching it, please tell me what you think. Our currency is not current. Old money, as rich as it looks, is flat out broke. Don't believe me? I got the receipts. We call it green, but it's only white. That was more fun than I was expecting, first of all. Honestly, <laughs> that was a ride. <laughs> right? Okay. It was beautiful. I mean, it's Spike Lee. I don't know what I was expecting. Like he's like yeah, was wonderful. an elite director, but that's hilarious. That was really fun. 
Yes, like it's not what you would expect. I whenever <laughs> I've talked to a couple people about it, as soon as it dropped, I, I remember I like messaged my best friend and I was like, you have to check this out. And she's like, Takara, I don't want to hear more about crypto. Like, <laughs> Takara, like, I can't I'm, do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, can't. I, I love you and I care for you. And I was just like, but no, 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 you'll just watch it. You'll enjoy it. And then she watched it and she's like, oh, these are all famous people. And she's like, oh, wow, this is fun. And I was like, yeah. And I was just like, and then afterwards she's just like, wait, what was it about though? And I was like, okay, so good. Just wanted to like make sure you had some enjoyment, bring some light to your life with that um, short commercial. And then, yeah, like she, we've talked about crypto, but she wasn't a hundred percent sure what the commercial meant um, and what the next steps were. And the reason I really wanted you to watch that is because I think the, you know, the idea behind Spike Lee's, you know, new cryptocurrency, which you really haven't heard anything about since that video dropped because there's been some significant backlash to it um, or, you know, to backlash to the digital rebellion that he published or he promoted in that, in that video. But the reason I wanted you to watch is because again, like the idea behind it is, is about digital, you know, financial liberation from this, from the system that is oppressed, you know, black people, people of of color, BIPOC, that's this, that's where I've seen a lot of people of color have been drifting towards crypto because they have seen that what they're doing, which is, you know, quote unquote, the right thing to do, having a bank account, trying to invest a little money they have at the end of the month in, you know, GICs and TF, you know, F, um, TFSAs um, isn't really getting them anywhere. And so that commercial to me was interesting from a sociological perspective because people are really desperate to try something new, to do something differently because the system they have now isn't really working in their favor. But at the same time, crypto is, it's such uh, an unstable space. It's really like gambling in some ways because you're just betting trying to take an educated guess and sometimes, but most likely you're just, you know, rolling the dice that the value of whatever you have is going to continue to go up and that there's restrictions or some type of um, oversight that would ensure that you wouldn't lose everything. You know, like even in the case of inflation, when you have, you know, countries that are printing out money as fast as they can, there are some there, there are some, you know, layers and levels in place, but with crypto, there is none. And that particular commercial always gets to me because it's a complicated thing to talk about, especially for people who have very little. And they see that maybe this is the gold rush of our time. Like maybe if I invest now, my kids will have, you know, will be able to go to university or college or will be able to purchase a house one day. Like when I talk to people, these are the goals they have. It's They're not thinking I want to have my own private yacht. They're thinking maybe possibly I can pay for my kids to do a four-year degree. And that's the hope and the optimistic side of crypto that I hear a lot from people. It's not money. It's just more about survival. And this is maybe one of the ways they think they can do it.
Just to uh, change gears a little bit as we end here, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, filming this uh, during the pandemic and, and, and what it was and how much it meant to you to have you know, staff and people working during this time um, and, how, and how it ultimately got made? Yeah, it was, I mean, I've worked on several podcast series and this is definitely one of the most unique ones we started this during the pandemic um, and I've actually never been in a room with everyone on the team and that's very unusual. So started this in last summer um, and going into the studio usually includes tons of people. You know, you have the producers, you have the technicians, you have, you know, PAs, you have all of these people who are, you meet face to face and you hang out with and you, can work with and, and this was different since I would walk into CBC and it was like a ghost town um, and CBC is usually full of people hustle and bustle it's one of the things I love um, but during lockdown you know a lot of people were working from home there weren't any shows that were being filmed at the time there were a lot of productions that you know had paused or were working remotely and so I would walk in and the only people I would see were the security guard um, the cleaners and the technicians. So the technicians who, you know, faithfully day in and day out, no matter what, no matter what was going on, were there to provide um, the news and, you know, work behind the scenes to get everything done. And I am so grateful to the technicians and the cleaning staff and the security guards. It was, it was, they made the show. And I always say it takes a village. Um, I'm just one person. I'm, you know, the host, I'm the voice, but there are so many people that make this happen. And, you know, I remember there were a time when, you know, I had to get a letter because there were, they were saying there were going to be fines for people who were going into office or working or like on the streets and stuff, like police could stop you and ask you like where you're going. I don't know if you guys remember that at all. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I remember that and I'm going like, oh my God. I don't want to be stopped. I don't want this drama. I remember I had a letter in my like pocket. Anytime I would go into the office, I would have that letter in my pocket from um, the head of the department being like, Chikara is allowed to be on the streets, allowed to like walk around. And, you know, as, you know, as a black woman, I was also afraid like, oh, like, you know, what situation could be if I ended up in a discussion with police about why I was walking around. Um, but, and I remember like one time, like, I remember... So two people died during the year that, um, during the last year. And I remember I was like, I was watching, like I was watching a virtual funeral because obviously you couldn't go anywhere. And then walking into the studio with this piece of paper that said, I'm allowed to be out. And I remember being like, this is the most surreal experience I have ever encountered in my life. And you get through those experiences with like having a good solid team. And I remember you know, anytime I would come in, the security guard would always just be like, how are you? Stay safe. We would like chat a little bit and go upstairs and the technicians were like, let's do this. Like, let's rock this. Like, no matter what, no matter what we saw in the news, no matter what was being reported, we were always like, we're going to do the best job and make this podcast, you know, as great as we possibly can. And that's what you hear in the series. Like, you hear me, but I hope you also hear, you know, hard work and dedication from the village that made this, not just me. 
Well, the village certainly made a great podcast. Uh, Takara, anything else um, we can look forward to from you? Anything you're working on? Anything you want to plug? Um, and where can people find you in your work? Yes, I. my name is Takara Small. Very fortunate my mom gave me a really unique name. So there aren't many of us, um, many of me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. And people can follow me there. Um, what I'm working on next. So I'm working on something pretty uh, cool series, which I'm really excited to share, hopefully one day soon when I get to go ahead. Uh, don't want to say it beforehand and get fired, but <laughs> it'll be tech related. Um, and aside from that, you know, I, I have um, an organization called Venture Kids where we teach kids from underserved areas how to code for free. Um, learn entrepreneurship. We also do food boxes. It's possible to learn on an empty stomach. So we do drop-offs right now because everything is still, um, you know, physically distant. So just excited to work on that and continuing really cool stories through tech. Awesome. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you and thanks. See you next week. If you want to keep up with us in between episodes, you can follow us at Just Watch Me Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Send us your thoughts and feelings about the show at JustWatchMePodcast at gmail.com. And it really helps us if you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. See you next week. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.